Today, Command Chief Master Sergeant Daniel Guzman joined me for a 90-minute podcast. It's my 32nd birthday, which means it's been exactly one year since I posted my first podcast. Chief Guzman has been the Command Chief at Fairchild Air Force Base for almost 18 months and is set to be the Command Chief at Elmendorf this summer. He currently has 25 years in active duty, and we talk about some of the lessons and experiences he's gained in those years. Chief values being available for airmen and being the voice for airmen during meetings with senior leadership. He pointed out that we can't assume everyone has a mentor or a coach, and we need to coach those people. We talk about how he worked 12-plus hours at Lake and Heath and burnt himself out as a senior master sergeant, and after a PCS to Langley, he realized he was the only one working past 1700 and that he needed to rearrange his priorities. He suggested I read the book Go-Giver in Culture Code, and within Go-Giver, the book highlighted that the most successful people were willing to share their secrets with others. I try to get Chief Guzman to share as many of those secrets he's learned as I can within these next 90 minutes. I've got Chief Mass Sergeant Daniel Guzman. Or Guzman? Guzman. Guzman. I should have yeah. practiced that before we started. Just this. don't call me Gusman. I won't. I only, I only ask. <laughs> I, I can do that. So, Chief, you're number 18 on my uh, podcast. I really appreciate you coming coming by to do this. I know we've got about an hour, maybe some change. We'll, yeah. We'll extend potentially. But, uh, yeah, thanks for coming, number 18. I know you PCS soon, so thanks for getting in here. Yeah. Uh, today's actually my birthday, so this is good. This is Happy good. birthday, brother. Thank you. Yeah, so this is a cool way Turned to Turned 30 today? 32. 32. Actually, age. I started this podcast a year ago today, like on my birthday, Chief, uh, Chief Anniversary. Wood. Anniversary, yeah. yeah. Ron Wood, I met him. Uh, good guy. I think we sat together for one of the AFSA dinners. We okay. Were AFSA worldwide deal. Uh, this past summer. Okay. Yeah, he's popular. Seems like a lot of a lot of uh, people are pretty more popular than I. The realized. longer you hang around, the more people you get to meet. Yeah. And then when you run these circles, I've been running these circles since 2018. Just being around command chiefs, key senior enlisted leaders, you get to like know a lot of folks. Cool. So, yeah, to get started, uh, we were actually just talking before we started. We both know Chief Bogdan, too, so another one. Yep, he's um, a powerhouse. He is a powerhouse. But yeah, uh, just before we get started, quickly about you and about your career. Yeah, long story short, uh, I was born in the Dominican Republic in the Caribbean, and I, uh, my first 11 years of my life were spent there. Um, I have a couple of siblings. I have a younger brother and a, my younger a younger sister. Uh, we're kind of far apart. My brother's about four years younger than me my sister's uh she's actually eight years younger than me okay um, you're the oldest yeah i'm the oldest of the three and then in 1989 uh, my mother brother sister we immigrated to miami florida my dad was kind of in and out of the picture uh, and then eventually pretty much out of the picture so i grew up in a basically a single parent home my okay. mom, the oldest of the three um mom uh Took on a lot of crap jobs to make ends meet, you know, mothers. Uh, for a long time, she worked, spent 20, over 25 years working at a grocery store as uh, an assistant manager uh, in Miami, Florida. Uh, that's where we moved to, Miami, Florida. Um, How old were you when you got there? I was 11 years old, and uh, I remember my parents at the time, dad was, you know, like I mentioned, he was in and out. He kind of helped us get set up there. Um and their idea was, hey, this summer you're going to go off to a summer camp. We're going to pay for you to go on all these day camps where you, we just drop you off in the morning, pick you up in the afternoon. Um, and uh, you're going to learn how to speak English, basically. Yeah. Figure it out. Um, so you came I mean, to America not knowing how to speak English? I knew very little, very little um, English. It was just, uh, hello, 
how are you? My name is that the basics, mm-hmm. the very basic stuff. And they dropped me off there that summer. It was probably, it was July. We got to America on the 5th of July. Um, and I've been to the States a few times before. Matter of fact, we lived in New Jersey for about roughly a year. Uh, my younger brother was born in New Jersey in a little town called Bridgeton, um, early 80s. Um, and then we moved back to DR. We, it was, so I would get to travel. So you didn't do like then. second grade? Were you like seven or eight? Uh, when I was in Jersey, when he was born in 82 and I was roughly what, four years old okay. in school yet, so I just kind of hung out and, um, back to DR. And then once in a while we get to travel to New York, visit my uh, family. My mom's family was up there in New York city. And, and then I remember one winter we went to New York and I remember I thought I was going to die. It was 20 degrees out or negative 20 or something. And I thought I was going to die because coming from the Caribbean where it's warm. Yeah. What is negative twenty? Like that is like that. Like what is this? Um, that's my most vivid memory of New York. How cold it was, and then uh, sometimes I thought it was a little sketch. At times <laughs> America sucks. America's <laughs> kind of sketchy, and then uh, it's hard times and cold weather. And then I remember, you know, once in a while, I think we came to visit Miami a few times um, with my dad. He would go there for business and do stuff. He would just I would just tag along and go with him and whatever to sitting and be- meetings with him and trying to stay awake, whatever. Mm. Um, he owned a small business in the, in the Dominican Republic. Um, eventually would evolve to selling cell phones, like a cell phone business, a cell phone shop. And I'll go into that later. But, um, but really we moved to America in 1989. It was just, my mom got fed up with living in the Dominican Republic. They didn't trust the situation there as far as like security, the economy jobs. And she had a good job. Uh, she was a professional. Um, she worked in, uh, was basically, a power company type enterprise and uh, she would do she was doing administrative work there and she had a, a good a decent job there right but she decided oh, i'm going to give this up and move my, i don't want my kids to grow up in this and then you know the whole marriage situation was kind of shaky mm-hmm. and, uh, my dad kind of set us up in miami uh, i remember the house it was a seventy thousand dollar home at the time it was and it's about a 1200 square foot home um small like attached townhome setup mm-hmm. um, and that's where we grew up you know uh, basically and mom worked a lot um, we all went to school uh, we spent a lot of time at home <laughs> alone yeah and I remember like I was just talking about baseball with you my, my 12 year old you know he's a big baseball head but I don't think he realizes like your dad's involved your mom's supportive everything you get asked for you have mm-hmm. like there's nothing you need for like in essence you need a new bat, you got a new glove, got it. You need, you know, baseball camp, let's go. Um, uh, with me, I remember I played baseball one year, like Little League. I was 13, going on 14. There was none of yeah. <laughs> You're on your own. You had to find your own. And, and I don't, I'm not complaining. I'm glad I went through that. I appreciate those things, the process. But it was like, hey, uh, you got to go to practice. Yeah, the neighbor's going to drop you off, and you got to walk home. Yeah. And this is like a, a three-mile. <laughs> <That's a long laughs> At the walk. time, for 13, 14, you're like, man, I got to walk home sketchy whatever in the yeah. highway whatever you know you just you just do it you just figure it out if you want to play balls you gotta you gotta own it and you know mom will provide what she could here's a mm-hmm. bat here's a glove um figure it out yeah um, and there was no if you want to do it better enough you'll figure it out you'll do it um but anywho growing up yeah growing up in miami it was pretty much the three of us siblings mom's always working um and she worked this job at this grocery store for 25 years finally so she got to the point where she could collect Social Security. She kind of retired. But guess what? There's no retirement pension. There's nothing. There's no benefits. It's, you work, okay, you don't come to work. You don't get paid anymore. That's it. Figure it out. 
so she still does like part-time work at the at a school nearby the house where my niece and nephew attend so it keeps her busy a little bit of money does your mom still live in that same town home still lives in that same house she'll never leave she'll never leave miami i'm convinced of that it has to do in part because why leave you know she she barely speaks english very little english in miami you don't have to speak mm-hmm. english i mean the majority population is immigrated from somewhere else so it's spanish you know creole other languages from you know south american caribbean and you're fine yeah. um you can survive you can do fine you can find work and you can make a living or make a life, uh, at least still now. I don't know how much longer because it's getting really being expensive, expensive to live there. Yeah, I bet. Rent prices and everything else going up. Mortgages are outrageous. So before um, you joined, what kind of jobs were you doing? Bro, I did every kind of dead-end job possible. In high school, when I turned 16, I remember I was playing like uh, this thing. Uh, there's a baseball program called RBI Baseball, Reviving Baseball in the Inner Cities. And I remember the Marlins had a program set up, the Miami Marlins, or it used to be called the Florida Marlins mm-hmm. in Miami, where they were pretty much sponsored like a little league for underprivileged or urban areas or, or kids that, hey, it's free. You just got to show up to practice, and we'll, we'll buy the gear. We'll provide volunteer coaches. And I remember being 15 or 16 years old and, and doing that, and my mom finally told me, hey, you need to get a job. I'm like, enough of this. Um, you know, I remember my mom and dad chipped in. They bought me a $1,000 car. There was a Cadillac Eldorado. They're like, hey, you have a car now. You got to put gas in it. You can go drive yourself to work, figure it out, and you get a job. Um, so I went and got a job. I got my first job at Eckerd's, a place called Eckerd's Pharmacy, which that's no longer exists. And anybody from Florida or South Florida would know what Eckerd's is. They grew up in the 90s. Um, I think Rite Aid or, or somebody else bought him out or big, another big corporate chain. Okay. My first job was there working on the drug counter. You know, people go pick up their prescription. I was hand them over and charge them and, and send them on their way. Did that for less than a year, and then I ended up going over and getting a job at Wendy's, flipping burgers, basically working the kitchen at Wendy's. Did that for a little while. Are their burgers really never frozen? Uh, th- that's that's fake news. <laughs> uh, yeah, we thaw them out and throw them on the grill. But it's a, it's a good – I think Wendy's – no sponsorship here. I yeah. don't want to put you on the spot, but for my money, if I were to eat like a fast food burger, I would go to Wendy's. Even after working there. Even right? after working there, I think it's all, it's legit. I mean, I, it's real meat, it's real beef. It's not like something, in, it's fresh ingredients for the most part. And then the chili, I know what it is. I used to make chili all the time at Wendy's. It's just grounded up old burger patties. Um, but all in all, I, I would eat Wendy's over some other. Places. I might be able to get Wendy's to sponsor me now. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, Mister uh, or Dave's family. Dave's gone already, but his family's still around. But anywho, I worked at Wendy's for a while, flipped the burgers, um, you know, and then I'm looking back. If I was, if my son was like 16 years old or 17, 16, 17 years old, would I let him do the things I was doing? Would I, I feel like I was. I mean, I was driving myself. I'd be there till like midnight, past midnight, closing up the shop, cleaning up. It wasn't it, it wasn't a terrible neighborhood, but mm. it wasn't the safest neighborhood. The part of town I was in, outside of you know Carroll City, Florida. And going to school the next day. Um, uh, usually, when I closed, I didn't have school. It would be like Friday, Saturday, Sundays, and then when I did have school, it would be during the weekday schedule. I would be off like before closing time. Um, so they worked with us for the most nice. part. It was part time, um, and then from Wendy's, I did that for a while, but over a year, and then I moved on. Eventually, got hired on at Walmart. Uh, and Walmart was a, you know, that was an interesting job too because you're dealing with, you know, 
I worked in the layaway counter, mm-hmm. uh, layaway department. So people come pick up their stuff from layaway. Well, they don't pay their layaway bill. Yeah. Guess what happens to the stuff? We put it back on the shelf and somebody else can buy it. Like We only hold it for so long. Once it goes past due, you haven't paid a bill. Hey, we got to put it back. So you just dealt with angry people. People get upset. Yeah. They roll up in there to get their Tickle Me Elmo, whatever they wanted. <laughs> and, uh, hey, man, we have to put it back on the shelf. Sorry. And people cuss you, yell at you. And as an 18, a 17, 18-year-old, like, man, I, this is not. <laughs> yeah, this is not what I want like, to do. I don't, I don't get paid enough to deal with this mm-hmm. craziness. Um, did that for a while. And then. Really, my senior year in high school, I kind of like, well, I didn't work for a little bit. I took a, a like a, a pause from working, and I kind of just focused in on uh, my academics. I wasn't going to finish high school on time, basically, if I didn't get my act together. My my junior year in high school, I you know I would skip school a lot or just not do the right things, not focus in, and my grades were kind of in the dump. There were I couldn't play any high school sports, you know, until my senior year. Basically, I ran, like I was on the track team for for a cup, mm-hmm. coffee basically that year because my grades were high enough to do something, but I couldn't do a whole lot in high school. I, I limited my options. Um, so senior year in high school, I said, hey, I'm going to focus in and actually try. I'm going to study. I'm going to do the right things. Um, luckily, we were fortunate that I can take a break from just working and doing whatever else I was doing and focus on academics. And I got my grades high enough where, you know, I had a B plus average pretty much the whole school year. And I graduated on time. I finished school. I had to go to summer school the, the summer prior to my senior year to catch up on some things. Luckily I was taking this weight training class. I didn't even realize the coach, uh, which to this day, thank you if you're out there, but the weight training coach, he was giving me credit, like an extra credit for showing up after school and lifting weights. My, nice. my, uh, sophomore and junior year in high school i would go and lift weights he gave me like a half a credit or something cheesy but it helped towards contributing towards me graduating on time i wouldn't even know he was doing that he would just mark you as being there and then give you credit for showing up just for showing up and lifting weights he would show us some stuff some stuff show us what to do and then half the people in there were the football players and everybody Mm -hmm. else so i was like oh i'm gonna do it just because i want to yeah um and that was great that helped me uh, but anywho, I got my stuff together, senior year in high school, graduated. Uh, after I graduated from high school, towards the end, I got a job at a, a place called Service Merchandise, which doesn't even exist anymore. It was a place where you can go uh, shop for appliances, jewelry, whatever you want. I mean, it, it had a good mix thing, uh, a good mix inventory of things available. Uh, and then my job was working in the warehouse, basically. I worked in the warehouse, and I was what they call an expediter. So somebody would order, like, a big TV set or a TV stand or any, anything big that was bulky would be in the back, and mm-hmm. I had to go pull it from the shelf with material handling equipment, whatever that was, pallet jack, whatever you name it. I had to get back there, pull it, put on a conveyor belt, and make sure it got to the front so the customer can grab it and go. How old were you when you actually joined? I joined the Air Force. I was 18. Okay. I was basically, when I was working at Service Merchandise, I was also going to junior college at a place called Miami-Dade North. Uh, Miami-Dade Community College. Now it's called Miami-Dade State College. They, Florida changed from community colleges. Now they call them state colleges. And now, which is great, I think Florida's got this right. You could actually get a four-year degree mm-hmm. at your state college and pay community college prices for junior college prices. Yeah. They, all, they only offer so many you know, things you can mayor, mayor in. Mayor, and I have a hard time with some work still. <laughs> yeah. Spanish, primary language. I think so many things you can focus in on and get your degree in or, or major in, um, like business admin, teaching. They make it simple. But at the end of the day, you can go to a four-year, you know, you can go and pay a fraction of you would pay the University of Florida, you know, the big state schools, Florida State, or even, you know, the private colleges, universities, and get your four-year degree mm-hmm. out of a state college. 
So at the time, it was just Miami-Dade Community College. They had a North Campus that was about 20, 30 minutes from my, 25, 30 minutes from my house. Um, so I was going to school there and paying out of, paying much, pretty much using the state Pell Grants or whatever else I can get for tuition assistance and then paying out of pocket for everything else. Or I would take out student loans, whatever, to pay for books. So I did that for the entire, like, summer semester uh, of 1996. Yeah, that's a long time ago. Um, and uh, I was like, well, let me try this. I'm trying to go to junior college. Everybody else is going to college. That's what I'm supposed to do, so I'm going to try it I'll see how it goes. Uh, and between working and barely making enough money um, to put gas in my car to get out there, so you know what, I, I don't think my life's going anywhere. I mean, I, I worked service merchandise. I worked before that. I worked at a Winn-Dixie grocery store. Stocking the shelves in the midnight in the midnight shift, you know, that was a junky job. If you ever have one, I didn't know you had six jobs. So many jobs, and I got remember I got fired from Walmart. You know, <laughs> they fired you. I literally got fired Did for just having a, no having a poor attitude. Wow. I was doing the you know, and this is legit. This is all things that I'm glad I went through because it teaches you to appreciate a job. And I just had a, a a crappy attitude about doing the jobs. Like I had to go pick up shopping carts in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. That was one of the last things they had me doing a lot of. Um, and uh, it was just, you know, I just had a crappy attitude. I didn't take the assistant manager or get on my case because I was, you know, what are you doing? You're lollygagging out there. You're acting like you're not interested. Oh, no crap. I'm picking up shopping carts. It's like 100 degrees out here with humidity in Miami. And I got, you know, bird crap everywhere. And, what, what you know, being 18 or and being pissed off at the world mm-hmm. because your life is not what you think it should be. All those things just didn't mix with uh, picking up shopping carts at Walmart. Um so anywho, going through that, you know, going through all these jobs, dead-end jobs, and you're working. I remember from those days was some of the people that were working there were like a lot of them were immigrants or people mm-hmm. that um, that were, na- you know, just been in America for a while. Just one guy I remember from Walmart, he got laid off from an actual a good corporate-type job, you know, what people think is a good job, and he got laid off, and he got to start all over again and get a part-time job at Walmart or a full-time job at Walmart working in the layaway department. Um, I worked at Winn-Dixie with a gentleman who immigrated from Cuba, in his thirties, he had to start all over. I'm sure he had a some kind of professional. He went to college probably, you know, and he had to start stocking shelves at Winn Dixie on the graveyard shift. It takes a lot of humility to say, you know what, I might have been this in another life or somewhere else, but I got to start from from the bottom here, working with high school kids or people that are trying to figure out their life. Yeah. Um, Do you think they were influences on you joining? Everything's an influence. Um, and I had two uncles that were retired, now they're retired Navy, but they always, the military was always in the back of my head, like, well, if, if college doesn't work out and I'm not, I feel like I'm just kind of stuck on a treadmill here, not going anywhere. Um, the military is definitely something I look into. And I got a piece of, uh, something in the mail came in for me, like, hey, uh, federal services, or military services, we're looking to recruit. Um, and it had all the services on there and the, the numbers. And I called the, uh, was it 1-800-423-USAF. That was the number I called for the Just recruiter. off a piece of mail. Off a piece of mail, I said, you know what, I'll give it a whim. I heard the Air Force, my uncles always told me, if you're going to come into the service, you know, go talk to the Air Force guy, talk to the Coast Guard, you know, maybe the Navy, you know, don't even think about the other two services, yeah. the Army and the Marines. They, they just, that was just their Navy. They were the best Air Force recruiters I ever had with two Navy, <laughs> two sailors. Um that, that would tell me, hey, if you're going to come into the service, go look into the Air Force or the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard guy, I never heard from the Coast Guard, and when I did go to maps and all that, the Coast Guard guy was never there. It was like he was always out. You know, they have a smaller number they have to recruit, and then once they, they hit it, they go fishing or something. I don't know what yeah. they do. Why wouldn't you? Um, but I heard it's a great, I mean, it's a great service. People I go to school with tell me, yeah, they they liked their experience in the Coast Guard. But 
the Air Force, uh, when I called the number, left a voicemail. The next day I got a call from uh, a tech sergeant, David Angleton, who was my recruiter. He was an air traffic controller by trade. Oh, nice. um, and uh, he didn't have to sell me in the Air Force. So I went to see him in his office down the road from my house in Miami Lakes. Nice office, great setup. And I told him, hey, you don't have to convince me on anything. I'm ready to go. Um, all I asked for is a free T-shirt and any other kind of <laughs> swag you can provide. So he gave me a T-shirt and a hat and a couple of pens. I said Air Force on him, and I was... And the only thing I asked for was, hey, the only thing, I, I work outdoors now. I work in the elements or in a warehouse. I want an indoor job. I want to work inside an office. That's it. Uh-huh. That's my only. It's easy request. You know, here's my ASVAB score. They weren't that great. I had to retake the ASVAB because I took it in high school to get out of class, whatever. And I got Same. like, and they, the Navy was calling me like, oh, you're qualified. You can join us. I remember the recruiter wouldn't tell me what kind of job I would get. He said, hey, yeah. you're qualified. You met. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm going to talk to, you know, I don't think I want to go into service. And then when I went and talked to the Air Force, like, yeah, you got to redo it. You're good enough to get in the Navy, but you got to get a little bit hired to come in the Air Force. So I went and retook it, barely made it, you know, over the 40 mark at the time on the ASVAB. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was good enough to give me an open admin uh, guarantee or something like that along those lines. So I went to basic training, and this, they told me, hey, you're going to be a material manager or supply guy. I don't know what that was. I just assumed, okay, I guess I work in a warehouse or in an office or some kind of indoor facility. So he kept to his promise. Sergeant Angleton, hey, you, you'll be inside. Um, yeah, you'll be out of the, admin. You'll be out of the elements. <laughs> yeah. Because I worked at the time. I was at Walmart. And I was like, I'm tired of being out in the sun or being out in whatever, dealing with craziness. Um, so that was all I asked for. Um, and it worked out. I mean, and, and I remember in February of 97, I was officially signed up, everything ready to go. And then two months later, I was gone you know, yep. to April. started off basic training, and there goes the rest of my life. 25 years have gone by quickly. So 21 years-ish after you joined, you got to be a command chief first sergeant in uh, your uh, safety, right? I got to be what they call a command first sergeant, command. And, I, and I got hired for that in 2018. I was on, I just, I was on my way back. I was about to depart Afghanistan off of my last latest deployment. Mm-hmm where I was working as the 455th ELRS uh, SEL, or superintendent at the time, the, the squadron chief, basically. Um, great deployment, great, you know, I got to see a lot of the country travel, go outside, you know, the fence lines of, the, of Bagram and uh, do some cool stuff and see some cool things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I loved the experience. And that was my third time in Afghanistan uh, in Bagram and only my sixth deployment I would have gone more, you know, but I had a stint as a first sergeant, as a tactical level first sergeant for four years, and I didn't get any deployment opportunities. I had mm-hmm. one that I was hoping it would materialize. It was during the Libya situation in 2011, but it didn't materialize. Uh, but long story short, yeah, in 2018, I, I, I applied to the job on a whim to be the command first sergeant at uh, USAFF Africa. Um, I kind of knew what the job would entail. I was like, oh, I'll figure out, put the diamond back on, mm-hmm. which was great. Um, I get to, you know, be the, the shirt, shirt, or, or, you know, be the functional manager, the MSM for all the first sergeants in the command and USAFF Africa. Um, I get to be the kind of like the eyes and ears for that command chief in USAFF Africa and see the field. Um, I just kind of feed him information on what's going on, what we need help with or what we can help the field with, et cetera. So I figure a great opportunity and I get some, a lot of insight into the command chief business, which is something at the time that I figured, well, this, I find it intriguing. Maybe I aspire to be a command chief someday. Um, but at least get more of a glimpse of what it's like and then decide if this is the life for us. Um, 
opportunity they would want to partake in. So anywho, I got the opportunity to, to apply for the job. Um, on my way back from deployment, I remember being in, in uh, spending like a week at IUD, um, waiting for my rotator stuff to line up. And um, I remember I called up to USAFE on a whim, like, hey, I haven't heard from anybody. I'm deployed. I'm sure, I don't know if, I don't know if you guys email my home email. And, and sure enough, they did. They said, hey, sorry, we didn't, we're in tracking. Um, yeah, you have an interview. Uh, you got to get ready. Here's your interview. Over the uh, phone or in person? It was a virtual, like, okay. video type setup. Um, but I'm glad I called because they told me, yeah, we want to interview you. But we, we emailed. We haven't heard back. I was like, well, I'm deployed. I'm, I'm making my way home now. So they were happy that I checked in. Nice. Um, and then a week, about a week, roughly a week after I got back from deployment, I got back to Eglin. I was stationed at Eglin at the time. Um, I had my interview uh, with Chief uh, Phil Easton, who is now the, the okay. UCOM senior enlisted leader. At the time, he was USAFF Africa Command Chief, and I worked for him directly in the position. So he interviewed uh, multiple candidates, and then I interviewed, I think it was on a Thursday or a Friday or something like that. And then that Sunday, they called me and said, hey, you're, we'd like to have you and your wife come and join us out here in, in USAFF Africa. And I wasn't expecting that. I kind of entered, yeah. I kind of applied thinking, yeah, I have a shot. Maybe they'll consider me. I really thought they were going to hire somebody who just came, just got done being a first sergeant tactical level and made chief. And, mm-hmm. but they wanted, they wanted to go the opposite way. They wanted somebody with operational, with time back in their career field. I had six years back as a material manager. I've been a flight chief as a senior, you know, I've done multiple jobs where I was a base level functional manager. And then, that a year working staff and working in the 480 SR wing, which they have a headquarters staff being doing that, doing the, you know, your UEIs, the, the typical things a, a staffer does, the, the functional manager yeah. things for the for that wing as far as the supply, the, the term management community. So I had a lot of relevant operational experience doing the, the MFM type things that prop, you know, prep you to be an MFM. Um, at the same time, I had my experience as a first sergeant, four years of field experience as a first sergeant between Davis Mountain and Lodges Field. So mm-hmm. they were looking for that mix. They weren't looking for somebody who'd been a shirt for like, you know, eight years and kind of been stovepiped in that world. And it worked out. Um, so I got picked up. And in the summer of 2018, we moved over to Germany, headquarters USAFF Africa. And I spent about two years and four months there uh, prior to coming here to Fairchild. You applied for this too, right? Interview? Well, the way that these command chief jobs work, and people, some people, the way it works is basically you got to be what they call a candidate. You got to get vetted. You know they have a board that vets. You know of you know the AFSELC, which is your MAGCOM, a good mix of your MAGCOM command chiefs and some of the COCOM command chiefs, depending on what kind of mix they go with. And then you have a couple of general officers and the chief master of the Air Force that sit there on that board mm-hmm. um, and vet the people that each wing uh, or wing equivalent nominates or pushes forward as a potential nominee to be a command chief candidate. Is it just paper or is it interviews? Um, a little bit of both. Here, like for example, I can tell you how we do things here. It's like we have people that we know are interested mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the wing commander has to uh, obviously put his name on their report and say, hey, I, I, I nominate this person or I'm pushing them, him or her to be a command chief candidate. Uh, if they don't know them, of course, there'll be an interview. It'll be some kind of conversation where, hey, what, you want to do this? Great. Why? Yeah. Um, and I'll have those conversations too with the folks leading up to it. Uh, at the end of the day, they shouldn't be a stranger to that wing commander putting his name on the piece of paper and it should be a stranger to me mm-hmm. um, so we have interviews and conversations i guess you call them inter- conversations leading up to us putting our name on stuff saying hey we're going to push him for on this track to be a command chief uh, so the way it works is yeah they have to vet you nominate you so i was nominated twice to be a command chief candidate i was nominated out of eglin uh, each wing has a they do a rack and stack of you know 
a one through and whatever, how many folks, yeah. you know, like a stratification type deal for chiefs. Uh, here's my number one candidate to be a command chief. Here's my number two. My first year up, I was number two out of Eglin. Um, I didn't make the candidate list that year, that year. And the feedback, I guys, well, you just got to, you say FF Africa, we want to see you. And my boss happened to be on the board and his feedback to me was like, basically you just got here. We yeah. want to see you in this job first your feedback before we great enough. What I can do about that. Got it. Um, and then at the end of the day is not like a, a go. It's not like a, this is not a promotion. These jobs are not, you're not promoted to these jobs. These are just opportunities mm-hmm. to serve as a chief and in, in, in a capacity as a command chief. So I never, people get it twisted. Like, well, it's a promotion or you outrank the other chiefs. I don't rank anybody. <laughs> I just happened to be the guy that got nominated and selected to serve in this position, you know? Yeah. So here's a question. There's no E10. Yeah. Uh, It's, it's a philosophical kind of question to ask someone, what does it mean to be? And then whatever. So what does it mean to be a father? What does it mean to be a baseball player? What does it mean to be a command chief? Um, The way I see it is um, in my last role as the command first sergeant, uh, I would tell the first sergeant to the command and the airmen at large, like, Hey, I'm an advocate for you. You know, um, I'm not, I'm not going to get paid any more money. I'm not doing this for any more clout, whatever. I get to advocate for you, you know, and I get to speak up on the things that you don't get to speak on because you're not in the room to have the conversations. Well, I have access to those rooms. I have access to influence to make your life better, to make, you know, operations, your life in general, better quality of service and quality of life to improve it. Uh, So I'm there to advocate for you. At the same time, I'll keep it real with you. I'll tell you when you're, you know, sometimes people ask for things and are they wants or are they needs or are they legit issues? And that's where I have to gauge and, and have that, that back and forth conversation to see, okay, what can we get to yes on and what can we influence? What can we control? Um, and where can I meet you at to improve, you know, quality of life, quality of service, whatever that looks like. Uh, and overly to to provide a, a mission-ready, operationally ready uh, airman and yeah. a family that's mission-ready and operationally ready. That's it. Okay. Uh, it's just access to a room, to a conversation. Yeah. That's the way I see it. I have, I have a seat at the table and I can speak up on things for people that can't be in the room to speak up on those things. Uh, and I can provide that perspective that sometimes the people making the decisions kind of no fault in their own, but they're kind of in a vacuum at times because of their schedule, because of the priorities, yep. because it was asked to them. Um, so I have to be the eyes and ears, you know, the hands and the feet at times to get out there and What's the rest of the story they're not seeing? Yeah. What's the perspective they don't get? You know, coming up enlisted, um, and coming up from certain backgrounds or, or just having you know different experiences, you're not a set of eyeballs. And a lot of you know, and you hear this a lot. Not to sound cheesy, but you're the person that's covering those blind spots that he or she may have, the decision yeah. maker may have. Um, I don't make decisions. I, I, I hope I help influence and shape <laughs> those things. I, but I'm not the decision maker. Um, I'm there as an advisor, point in blank. Yeah. But I'm also there to provide the perspective and the viewpoint and the inputs that to speak up for the people that can't be in the room, that are not in the room because they're out doing the things that need to be done to. Yes, I'm sure your relationship and your influence with the wing commander who is making most of those decisions has to be important. How's how's the relationship? Yeah. Well, I'm fortunate. We have a great relationship here. I mean, really, I call the favorite few crew um, because it's a crew, right? The 135 is a crew. Mm Aircraft, you know, you have your your pilot, your co-pilot, and then you have your crew in the back, your you know your boom operator and your flying crew chief, um, that make it all happen, right? So we're a crew. So I look at Colonel Bentley, uh, Colonel Marshall, or Vice Wing, and, and myself as a crew. 
So we make decisions. We over communicate. We spend a lot of time together. Uh, and you got to have a good relationship. Relationships are critical to these jobs, yeah. to these opportunities. And, um, and when you see that stuff goes sideways with teams, with command teams, is when they don't have good rapport, open dialogue, and you know they're honest with each other. And it's not always going to be um, flowery, or you're going to get on each other's nerves. You're going to drive each other's bonkers. Yeah. But the biggest thing is you're going to know it. If I'm upset, you're going to know it. If I'm happy, you're going to know it. And and if I think we missed a mark on something, I'll, I'll be the first one to take blame for it and tell you, hey, I got to do better. We got to do better. And here's where we missed a mark. And we're going to, uh, they have a house for us on base as command chiefs. But yep. my next door neighbor is the third wing command chief, which is the flying wing. Okay. Um, and I've known him for 12 years. I used to be his first sergeant when I was security forces first sergeant. But um, it's just interesting how it all <laughs> just came together. Long story short, we got, we ended up discussing as a family, where do we want to go? And it was Elmendorf and a job in the UK. Um, or retire. Or retire. And which, like, hey, by then it'll be, figure we'll have 25 years is a long run, you know, no shame. I mean, that's a longer than I thought I would hang around for sure. Um, I figure I'll do 20 and go. But um, long story short, it, it just worked out. Um, so we got pushed for those. We asked to be selected or, or pushed for those two jobs, or at least okay. considered for those two jobs. And then interviews took place. One thing led to the other. Next thing you know, we're, 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 we are we find out, hey, we're headed to Elmendorf. Um, so it worked out. I mean. It did work out. I, I have some things I could ask you about going to Alaska and not taking leave, especially with what you've got published and what you usually teach when you do ALA. But yeah. before that, something Cassie Pease had said during, she had an interview with you a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And then told us about it. And she said something that I really wanted to ask you about. Um, when you were at Lake and Heath, I guess yeah. you used to work a lot of hours. You prioritized was, work. And then when you moved to Langley, you realized, hey. Maybe I should prior- reprioritize. So. I was doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, now that you might, you almost went let back me tell to you something. Uh, senior master sergeant. Uh, people say is the forgotten rank. I've heard that before. I was like, I think your people that say that are full of. I don't know if I can cuss on here, but they're full of it. You can. Uh, they're full of. They're full of shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't feel forgotten about because I feel like every every tough tasking, every people operational challenge. Um, at least that was my experience at Lake and Heath for those three years I was there as a senior, as a running a flight. It was a hundred over one hundred and fifty people on that flight, and I oh, had. People. It was two of us, two seniors, and then we had a, a young, usually we had a lieutenant or a captain as our flight commander. Um, but that's where the rubber meets the road, mm-hmm. is that that flight chief, flight, whatever you call it, <laughs> leadership, you know, that little office, that's where stuff happens. That's yeah. where, you know, the people stuff comes to line. That's, I have to use every muscle, every experience as a first sergeant to motivate, whether it's motiv- motivating folks, morale, discipline, all those things I got to learn as a first sergeant, um, knowing who to call, when to call, you know, Operationally, I had to use every muscle. You know, I had to leverage everything I had to to improve the operation, to to be innovative, to to clean up things, to go to navigate through the, the heavy inspections. Everything, everything. Um, and I feel like that's really where you where you cut your teeth and you prove your worth as a senior NCO, as a leader. Um, you're going to be stretched, and uh, and me just being the way I'm wired. People can describe it as being intense at times, which is. I want to, I want us to be the best. I want our flight to be the best. I want our flight to be on front, innovative. And, and my, that was my mindset at the time. So what does that entail? That entails showing up to work, you know, early in the morning, going to the gym then showing up to work, um, you know, I don't know, by seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning or the latest after going to work out seven thirty in the morning, should be my show time and, and not leaving the office until, I don't know, six thirty, eighteen thirty, nineteen hundred. 2,000 hours some days. hours was normal, huh? That was the normal routine op. And then when you go home, 
uh, my wife would catch me talking to myself and I'll be having conversations about with somebody, something that happened or something that was going to happen the next day. And I would talk to myself a lot. Like in your sleep or just? I'll be sitting there watching TV or doing something or sitting in the house and looking away and just having a full-blown conversation to the point where I would, I would laugh at my jokes. I would talk. I would just talk through scenarios. Um, I was at work. I was mentally still at work. Um, so I was home, but I wasn't really home. And my kids noticed it. At the time, they were still young, but they would notice, and they would bring it up to me like, Dad, you're still talking, you're talking to yourself. Um, and at the time, we, it was like, ah, I'm not, whatever, you guys. I was having these conversations about things that, were, that already had happened, that were about to happen. And on top of doing the, the nuts and bolts, doing the work piece, right, being a flight chief, the, the ops, the discipline, the meetings, the what's next type stuff in the job, you know, I was running, I was the AFSA division vice president and moved up to be the division president for AFSA for division seven. Um, is division is, just the base or is that? Division is like the, the matchcom equivalent, okay. like you say, for the region. That was the, I was an AFSA regional president for part of that. Um, so which, and, and that means you got to do all the reports for the entire region, follow up with all the, all the chapters, mm-hmm. the local, the base level, you know, AFSA chapters, travel was involved too. I had to go to DC every so often for their big meetings with the corp, with their big, you know, AFSA international, Annually. uh, a couple of times a year, at least twice a year. Um, and I had to travel within the command and, and do all the emails and do, Hey, I got to go here and check on this chapter. Or I got to send these emails once a quarter, had these big reports that were due, um, so that's like a part-time job on his own. That's a job in itself, right? Being a division president. And on top of that, you're doing the whole, hey, I, the top three needs people to step up and run things. I'm it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would be doing those things. Um, on top of that, I just finished my master's degree as a first sergeant, uh, which was insane. <laughs> Working on a master's degree as a first sergeant is very time-consuming. When you have two kids at home and a wife and everything else, or your weekends were um, – I would go out and do things on Saturdays, try to do things on Saturdays and Sundays, but really those nights, you know, Friday night, Saturday night was writing papers night. Yeah. So that means I would get home and I'll be up till two in the morning. Yeah, writing I got papers. no kids and I know the struggle. Yeah, writing papers, doing everything that's required. And then the next day you feel like, you know, you've been hit by a bus yep. and you have to be on for your, try to be attentive to your wife and the kids and everything else. Um, it was tough. Um, Anyhow, we get to Lake and Heath, yeah, and we're still running at that high clip. And by the way, I'm not working on my master's, but I'm doing all these other certifications because you feel like you're in this arms race where you're like, well, I got to do all this. If I don't do all these things, then somebody else will, and then I won't get promoted, blah, 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 blah. And then meanwhile, you're burning it both ends, right? You're, you're burning yourself out on the job. You're eating like garbage. Yep. You can work out all you want, but you know, at the end of the day, you go home and you eat, you overeat because yep. you're stressed. Um, you drink scotch or whatever else. <laughs> They put it in front of you and you get all bloated and then you're just, I remember leaving there and I was at least uh, 30 pounds overweight. Leaving Lake and Heath? Leaving Lake and Heath. It was a meat grinder. Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you a whole other story about doing all this stuff, doing all this work, trying to be everything for everybody. Um, and then getting told in essence, well, I'll tell you right now, getting told at the end of my time, well, it's your first time off for chief, so we're not really looking at you for whatever. Um, you got other people in front of you that have been in longer. So and I remember leaving there thinking, you know, our flight was like the best in the command. Mm-hmm. Um, we got multiple, like we had Air Force level award winners, like civilian, military, you know, matchcom level winners, wing level winners for the annuals, uh, more quarterlies that we can count with our hands as far as wing level quarterly wins. Um, 
I was fortunate. I was an Air Force level award winner for the I was the first year they had the Lou Allen Award for the logistics readiness category. Uh, Twenty thirteen, um, I was the first one to pick that up. Whatever, but congrats on the work, on the standing on the shoulders of the people on my flight and that squadron to help us out. But it's really funny you just said that. That's something one of my my mentors, Chief Harper, said when he made Chief. He mm-hmm. said, "I remember some A one C thanked him, and he said I did it by standing on the shoulders of people like you.' But thank you." It's so true. That, that they they the do the thing. work. I mean, they, and the Brits say that a lot. You're standing on the shoulders of giants, but they do the work. I mean, I'm just there. I'm the, I'm a coach. I'm there to point them where to go, tell them how to do stuff, give them some ideas, and and bring out the best in them. In essence, and so wing level. I mean, I was a wing level senior NCO of the year, Air Force level award winner, all the same year, 2013, and then 2015 comes around, first year eligible for chief, eligible for chief, and I get told basically. You're not even in the discussion. Yeah. Like you're third in line, and these two guys have been in longer than you. So, and what really, like, looking back now, I can laugh about this. I remember this person giving me this feedback, the chief of the time, telling me, well, and then so and so just got his bachelor's degree done. <laughs> yeah, I've got and, a master's. And, and I had a, like, my, my head almost exploded. Like, chief, I got my master's done three years ago. Did you say it? I did. <laughs> and that's when I knew he didn't even, they didn't even look at my, they didn't even consider me. I wasn't even, I'm young. At the time, I've been in 18 years. They were like, yeah, whatever. Okay. You got to go wait. Wait your turn. Um, and for all I know, they're they're probably like, hey, I need to do some more growing. I need to get some more whatever in my life. Um, the same person told me, you're addicted, you're addicted to the Air Force. You're overworking yourself. You're doing everything That's what the Air Force that we did. tell people not to do. You're, you're just running too hard, taking on too many things all at once. Um, did you agree with that person at the time when they said that to you? Uh, I was angry. My everybody. I mean, my, okay. This is the same time you're not getting pushed. Uh, at the same time, I'm being told you doesn't matter what you've done. Everything you've done is pretty much for not. Even though you accomplish uh, things that none of these folks in front of you have accomplished, as far as um, accomplishments, you know, hardware and you know, accolades and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Education. Your your flights accomplish things, and you know, etc. That it wasn't even really considered. So my point was like, so do you really care about? This is at the time that the Air Force was really pushing hard on performance, 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 uh, instead of just, you know, hey, you've been here a long time, yeah. we've got to promote you. Um, so to me, it was like we're talking at a three, three sides of the room. That really frustrating. When, when the big institution saying one thing and the yep. people on the field are saying, oh, we don't care about, like, we're going to have our own, make our own calls. Um, so I was like, whatever, you know, I wasn't even. It is cool to see you at Command Chief now and you still realize that that was a thing then. it Like, that's cool that. It does happen to everyone, or yeah. it's not just something. No, and, and, and it's personal, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I sacrifice, you know, you sacrifice <laughs> family time, you sacrifice, sometimes sacrifice your health, you know, yeah. you, you, you overextend yourself. I mean, you, you care more than, you, you show up first, you leave last, you, you feel like you care more than just about anybody in that building or anybody on that installation. Um, you, you, and I'm telling you, I was, everything that the installation needed help with, you know, they will come ask for something, I'll, I'll do it. Um, I never turn anybody away. I would help any. My logic was, I'll help anybody who asks for help. Um, I'm not going to say no to anything. Um, and it was maniacal almost to the point where, when I left there in the summer of '15, I was overweight. I was burnt out. Um, I can tell you, my family probably resented me at times because I, I, I seemed to care more about that than mm-hmm. I, about them. Um, I don't think I used to make fun of. We had an inside joke in our flight, our little command team up there. Like, you know, some people are here for the ITT trips. Some people are here to go on the little trips and go see in Scotland Europe, yeah. and hang out. And they're in Europe and go have fun. And some of us are here to work. We're here to work. 
Yeah, uh, that was our, our badge of honor, our, our thing. Like I'm here to I'm here to work. I'm not here to do ITT trips and, and hang out and uh, just be happy to be here. We're here to work, um, and that's cool and all, but it comes with a with a price. Yeah. Um, long story short, we left there. I was I was really overweight, um, burnt out, tired. Uh, the whole deal with hey, you're not even being pushed. Not even. Being, what are you talking about, Chief? Like, for, get out of here, kid. Go, go, yeah. go. Wait your turn. Basically, that's pretty much in my head what I was what I was hearing. Um, so I got a job. We got, we got picked up to go to Langley. Um, and this is just random. I got it. Hey, you're going to work at the 480, 480th ISR wing on the headquarters staff. Like, Oh, I don't know what that is. It sounds cool. <laughs> um, so you get to work for, for LRS or something. No, I get to be a, the material management, the supply, uh, what do they call it? The sustainment superintendent. That's the name okay. of the job they had. It was a, it was a material manager supply billet for a senior. You're working on this headquarters staff in the 480 ISR wing, and I work with a bunch of comm folks and, okay. and uh, it's Intel ISR support. So it's a weapon system called the, you can look it up, it's public, uh, it's called the DCGS. Um, and you can Google it, look it up, and you'll see some stuff on Wikipedia about it. But anywho, uh, you're just doing sustainment for this weapon system there, Air Force uses. Uh, I think I took ISR. you off the, the topic, though. Get back to that. Yeah. Like, so you get back after 30 pounds, yeah. back in America. Yeah. I get to Virginia, and I was like, well, I'm going to make it work. I mean, uh, this is a job. I get to work in a skiff. I get to work office hours. Like, I get to focus on my family, my health. And that's what we did. We we ended up buying a townhome in Yorktown, Virginia, which looking back, was probably a bad move. It was like, well, what are we doing? Are you trying to relate to your mom? Townhome. Yeah. Well, it was a nice townhome. It was like a three-story, 2,500-square-foot townhome in Yorktown. Okay. They got a lot of townhomes there. But, um... Nice area, you know, is I could I was a mile from the from the Yorktown Beach, which is like a river, Yorktown River, you can just run down there. Mm-hmm. Um I could literally run, go on a jog and go run down to the beach and back, and it was great. It was great, beautiful. Close to Williamsburg, Virginia. It's just a cool little area. Langley's a huge base, beautiful base on the water, uh, headquarters base, so you got everything you can think, you know, you could wish for there. Uh, so I figure I'll get to Virginia, we'll focus in and I might just retire out of here. I hit yeah. I'll hit, you know, twenty years. Here, you know, in about, I got there in 2015, so I had two more years to go. And I figured, well, I hit 20 here in two years, and this will be the place I can settle in. I got, you know, a good job in ISR. It's a unique skill that they're always looking to hire in this area. So I could just settle in right here and chill. Yeah. Like, what, what am I stressing about? Um, I don't think I'm going to make chief. And uh, at the time, they had the, the EPR forms changed too. So the, the people were doing this whole thing where, well, not everybody can be a far right, yeah, yeah. Far right guy or gal, you know. Oh, that's you know crazy. So guess what? You didn't get stratified, so that means you're not the far right guy or gal. So you're you know one over to the left, and everybody was like, "Oh my God, my career's over." The sixteen bubble because we've been conditioned or, or brainwashed and thinking, "Oh, anything, any of your blocks are marked to the left. Your career's over. You're done." Yeah, yeah I had just made tech that year. Yeah, and my supervisor marked me down. I was like, "Found the whatever." Middle. And I remember thinking, yeah. "Like this is the end. This is the end." <laughs> and I was like, master. "Well, it's over. It's curtains for me. It was a good run. <laughs> you know, I, I, I got that. I got out of Miami. I, yep. I made it. I make it twenty years." and collect a retirement check and get a job, use my top secret clearance, SEI, and some intel mm-hmm. stuff that I'm learning here and get a job doing supply chain sustainment for, you know, whatever. One of these companies will pay me to come in. But I do want to get to this. So you were, like you said, you were working 12, 13 hours in Lake and East. Yeah. You get to Langley and you realize something there, right? Yeah, I realized, like, I'm doing it wrong. Like, I'm not enjoying anything. I'm not in the moment. Uh, I mean, so it was the best thing. Working in a skiff and doing the work we were doing, I couldn't talk about work at home. Yeah. Um, oh, nice. And then I would leave. I remember leaving there some days at 5, 1700, 1730, and I'd be, I'd be tumbleweeds in the hallway. I'd be the <laughs> last guy. Like, everybody does it right there. Like, they leave 
it's time to go home. It's time to go home. We've been in a skiff all day, no windows. You might go out for a lunch break. I will sit in my car and have lunch in my car, have like a sandwich or something, just to get out and see the sun. Yeah, um, or drive someplace, uh, whatever, and do something. But um, it was it was good for us. It was good for for us as a family. You know, we found a, a good little community there. I mean, we're only there for a year, ended up being there for a year, but it kind of helped me reset and reprioritize. What, what am I doing? You know, I, I've been chasing stuff this whole time and I'm in cha- I've been going at it all wrong. I've been ignoring the people that really matter. Mm-hmm. People that are going to be here when it's all done. Um, I've been taking care of myself. So I started running, getting outside and every morning I go to PT. Nobody was looking for me. Um, I could show up to work at eight thirty, whatever. And, and oh, fine. The stuff's going to be there. Um, got to go on a few TDYs and see some things. Um, so it was good. It was just a good experience overall. And I got to meet some great people and work with some phenomenal people and learn a whole different side of the Air Force that I would never. People in my career for usually don't get exposure to working in ISR support. So it was just eye-opening, great. Personally, it was really good for us. Yeah, so um, it sounds like you, you really did get burnt out in England. Completely burnt you out. you came to Virginia, you just realized yeah. everything. And, and not to sound like I'm trashing my experience at the 48th for the sure. Liberty Wing. It was, it was great. I'm extremely proud to call myself a Liberty Wing alum. Um, a lot of great stuff we did. Sync IA, we're finalists for the Sync IA there in, in 2015. Uh, we're one of the final two in the entire, you know, Air Force. Yeah. Um, all the mission stuff that goes on there. That that wing is a is a busy wing. It's for good reason because we're they're top notch as the premier fighter base, fighter wing in the Air Force, bar none. Um, and the level of work that we put in there, I mean, it's for a reason. But anyway, going to Langley was phenomenal. And the shift in mindset from I need to really recalibrate and figure out what's important and what's what really matters yeah i had a same guy chief harper had me read this book once called the last lecture and it was right when i had made master and something i yeah. took from that book is it's uh, one of the chapters in there it's this guy who and what he says is hard work is like investing into a bank like you need to work as hard as you can as much as you can while you're young um because it's like an investment which will pay dividends throughout yeah. the rest of your career so it sounds like maybe you had done that in england and it makes things easier because you know a lot more um but the more I've been in the Air Force, and even though I thought that, and you know, I try to work hard and do that, yeah. I'm realizing like that's not the common thought process on like no, because burnout is a thing. So I don't yeah. know like, what's your opinion. Like, are you? Do you think you're better now because you work those long hours? I'm better for having gone through all those experiences. I'm better for having you know. People ask me like, oh, you wear a shirt for four years, and that, that slowed you down for promotion. How do you feel about that? Somebody asked me the other day. I was we're TDY someplace. Like, hey, I'm, I'm worried. I, I would like to be a shirt, but I'm afraid it's going to hurt my promotion chances. Yeah. I'm like. You're putting money in the bank. Those experiences, I wouldn't be here without those experiences, without the exposure to the things I had. Um, and, you know, and I heard I had a, a, a mentor, somebody I consider a mentor, somebody I had a chance to work with, used to say, you know, not all chiefs are built alike. Not mm-hmm. all commandees are built alike, you know. Uh, and wh- what he meant is, you know, yeah, you have two chiefs here, but one kind of had a, a sheltered upbringing or everything was handed to him or her, or uh, not to come across the, the wrong way, but... right. They had an easier experience. You know, they were in the right place, right time. They did a lot of good work, and then the right people recognized it, and they got, you know, they're promoted. They earned a promotion. And you got the other person here who's gone through some stuff, who's been punched in the mouth, been punched in the face, had, you know, gone through some some great experiences, some horrible experiences, um, and had to, you know, work to burn out, et cetera, just to get told you're not good enough still, go wait, uh, and gone through some things, you know. They both bring some good things to the table, but which one, you know, are you really going to go to? Well, you need advice on going, going through some things, some adversity, some challenges. You know, which you know, which one can you rely on? You know they've been through it. You know they've been through a meek grinder and came out on the other side. Yeah. 
all the people I looked up to the most that, you know, that I mentioned earlier, he went to an expense, uh, not without well, names, I don't want to put him on the spot, but he went to an experience as a squadron chief where they failed their freaking inspection, like their big, you know, maintenance type inspection. They felt it. Mm-hmm. And he left there on the heels of that. He got hired to go to another job. They failed, then he left? Basically, as, as he was getting ready to out process to leave, you know, his going away was like the saddest, most pathetic going away event ever. He's like, we're just on the heels of failing a freaking inspection, yeah. our big inspection, and demoralizing, you know, terrible experience. But he's, he's, he'll tell you to it to this day, like, hey, I'm glad I went through that. I know what losing or what, you know, yeah. perceived loss feels like. I know what getting punched in the mouth feels like. I can talk to that when people come to me for help, for advice. Um, some people never had that experience, never been in that position, you know, no fault of their own, but they can't really help you with, I agree, hey, how do yeah. you come back from this? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been there. Everything, I've been fortunate or whatever. Um, so, so was it at Langley or your next assignment when you decided to write and make that publication about work-life balance? Um, the work-life balance came on later. I want to say it was later on. It was something I worked on at Eglund. Um, so long story short, Langley, we were only there for a year, right? We were there for about six months. We got there in July of 2015, and then December of 15 comes around, and we get the notification like, hey, the Air Force has decided to, to roll you to chief. Oh. Um, it was first time up. I, wasn't, I didn't think it was going to happen, not that year or maybe ever. I thought I was going to just get told, hey, not good enough for you to make so you the made, cut. You made it without a. Without I made a it strat. with no strat. Okay. I made it with that EPR that told me that I, I didn't ex- clearly exceed all expectations. Yeah. I made it through all that craziness. I mean, I felt like it was a storm. I was like, really? This is what? This is it? This is. Yeah, that, that's cool. <laughs> this is what I earned. I get told you're not good enough and go with your turn. Basically, that's all not I heard. Enough, all I heard. Right. <laughs> yeah, and then turns out like, hey, we're gonna promote you anyway. We don't care what. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was kind of like, huh? So God had other plans, you know? Uh, so I always tell people, you know, people close doors, uh, God knocked down walls for you. So that's the way I took that. Like, well, I guess he had other plans for us. Um, so anywho, long story short, we found out, we're, hey, Greg, congrats, you're, you're, you're chief select, but guess what? There's no slot here for you at Langley mm-hmm. in, your, in your particular career field, so you're going to have to PCS, and uh, here's the list, and then we got a couple of lists. Uh, it worked out that we got opportunity to go to Eglin in Florida in the panhandle. Life is good. I'm, yeah. I'm a Miami native. So hey, I'm in Florida. I'm in the panhandle, but I'm in Florida. Yeah. And, uh, and life is good. You know, we're closer to Orlando. Things the kids like. The beach is right there. We can literally, you know, go to the beach every day if we wanted to. Yep. Um, and we're, we're ocean. We're beach people. Our family, we, we like living close to the water and we just enjoy everything that it brings. And we don't mind. I don't mind the hurricanes. I don't mind any of that stuff. People are terrified. I, I'm, I'm good. Um, I could deal with all those things. Humidity, bring it on, whatever. Sure. Um, so we moved to Eglin and then uh, from there, yeah, there it was, I walked into an, an opportunity as the material management flight chief where they needed somebody, a coach, uh, a mentor, they needed what a chief brought to the table um, just to round out the, the operation there. And it was great. Uh, I got to, you know, work there at the 96 LRS. I got to go on the deployment to Bagram and do some cool stuff. And then I think I wrote that work-life balance piece uh, during my time there at Eglin. Yeah. Um, and we got it actually published, which is pretty cool, uh, through the Logistics Officers Association. They have a, an actual peer review, uh, kind of newsletter deal they run, publishing, whatever. And yeah, I read, it, I read it a couple of days ago when yeah. I knew you were coming over here. So I worked with it with, with Colonel Boswell, who's my commander at the 96 LRF. And it's something that he kind of, he, he's, he's a writer, he likes to write. Um, 
and he kind of got me into it. And I've been written in a while. I should probably get back into it some more. Yeah. Um, I've done a few articles and a few, I wrote one when I was deployed to Bagram's called Get to Yes. Um, it's a short read, but it's pretty good. It's kind of an op-ed. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a different one that was published in Germany when I was there. It's called Make It the Team You Want. And then the work-life balance piece is something I worked with Colonel Bospel on. I was really proud that I got, it was peer-reviewed and published, which is good. That's but writing cool. is something that I, I got to definitely find more bandwidth, more time to do more of, because it's something else that I consider to be kind of therapeutic in essence. Yeah. And, and you got something in your head, you kind of want to put it down and work on it, polish it, and publish yeah. it for the world to, to see and read and learn. You said a lot of things there that I want to ask you about. One of them yeah. was you got to be a mentor when you got to Eglin. And something, yeah. I think, it was, I don't know if it was Cassie or Jeff Stucker, but when they when they were talking about their interview with you to the yeah. ALA class, uh, something I guess you had once said is assume some people have never had a mentor and to be that mentor. Yeah. So I guess the question is like, if you want to be someone's mentor, yeah. how do you well, do that? Well, mentor is an interesting concept. And I hear people say mentor, but um, mentor tells you, here's how I did things when I was walking through the path you're walking through right now. Here's the things that I encounter. Here's, here's how I navigated through it. Um, and that's cool. There's times to be a mentor, but really what we need now more of is, is coaches. A coach will tell you, here's what you bring to the table. Here's what you have. Here's where you're good at. Um, and here's how you can use that, what's already in you, to get through whatever that obstacle, situation, challenge is. Um, I think we need more coaches okay. uh, in general. So, And I, I use that word a lot, but that's really what I – look at myself as when it comes to that. I look at myself as a coach. You know, you're walking through things right now as an Air Force, as a senior NCO, as an NCO, that I didn't have to walk through. Mm-hmm. It was different dynamics, societal dynamics, you know, whatever, you name it, operationally, whole different dynamics. If I told you how we did things back in 2001 when I was a staff sergeant in Korea, the 5th Recon Squadron, that's great, but none of the technology you're talking about and other things are, you know, the society type stuff going, there was no, that was going on back in 2001. It was yeah. a whole different dynamic. It was nine 11. It was a whole different world. Um, so your mentorship, yeah, it'll give me some perspective. It'll help me. Um, but is it really going to help me? Cause you're telling me about things, uh, but ultimately people need coaches. Yeah. People that can maximize what they do have and what's relevant now. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about books. Um, so Reading about books and about talking about, uh, you said, I guess you had a publication in Europe or you wrote something here about team building. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Make it a team you want. Okay. A couple weeks ago, you told me uh, Culture Code was a great book and yeah. read it. And then you told me to get to read The, the Go-Giver. The Go-Giver ones I love and yep. I keep that, uh, The Go-Giver Leader, I keep it in my desk. Okay. Yeah. So um, I, I have questions to ask about all of them. Yeah. But first, I, uh, so I read I read uh, The Culture Code and then Go-Giver. And then when yeah. I started reading Go-Giver Leader, it's just a copy of the book. It's not about you. Yeah. Which uh, Chief Tricky, I don't know if you know him, he had me read it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like, what? Like, I bought it, and it's literally the same book. They just renamed it to just like renamed it. Yeah. <laughs> so I felt the cheated. Go-Giver leader. But yeah, so yeah. I, I've read all three. Um, but you talked about building teams at our writing in Europe. Was it Lake Anith or somewhere else? Ramstein? Um, uh, Make it the team you want. Is It was an article that got posted on the, the yeah, KMCC, okay. has like a, the KM, the, the the Kaiserslautern military community is, you know, the Ramstein yep. and all the surrounding army bases there. Capone, about 50,000 yeah, people strong there that are affiliated with the military. So they have a publication that published like a, a, an online pub, like a paper basically, and they, mm-hmm. I think they, they print it too. Um, and I wrote an article called Make It the Team You Want, which it just hits on taking ownership and talking more about we versus, hey, the institution's failing me or this is broken or that sucks. Is okay, how do we fix it? What can I do for my, yeah, my own little you know twenty feet you know 
square feet box, whatever to okay. get after it. Uh, Sounds a lot like doing? culture code. Yeah. Yeah. What are we doing yeah. to get after, you know, and ultimately nobody wants to play for the bad news bears. Nobody wants to play for a bad outfit and be part of a losing outfit operation. But what are we, what are we doing to own it? Yeah. Right. What are we doing to take, make it better uh, within our sphere of influence? That's good. Um, yeah. yeah. Cause in culture code, uh, one of my, one of my friends, actually, she was on this podcast. Number three, uh, Kiara Fraser, she had, I told her I was interviewing you and she's yeah. currently just reading the culture code. She told yeah. me, I was like, Hey, coincidence. Like I had to read, I read that book to interview someone and she's like, Oh, you should ask him about this. And yeah, and I'll, I'll reframe it. Um, Greg Popovich, the Spurs coach, yep. he takes deliberate effort to make a team, like go out to dinner, be in huddles, relationships. To talk. Yeah. yeah. So what he makes effort to build a team that makes sense to me when reading it, but I've never actually deliberately done that. Have you ever done anything yeah, I mean, people think it's cheesy, but, you know, food brings people together. So even here I do it where we have the Chiefs and the shirts over to the house. You know, I work with, you know, a lot of folks in, in this capacity as a command chief, but spend a lot of time talking to our group chiefs, our chiefs in general, and our first sergeants. Um, so I think this May they'll be over to our, my house. I'm going to book a date here. I already told them it's going to happen. And we have those social settings where we'll just get together, just share a meal, share some food, just get our families together to get to know each other. And it's cheesy and it's people that always overdone. It's just a, well, you have to do those things to build relationships. And they get to see you. For one, they got to understand, hey, I'm a human being. You're a human being. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. Um, we have a lot of the same yeah. <laughs> focuses and priorities. And come and see the house. You know, I live in the, we live in this command chief house. This is your house, really. I'm here because of y'all. And I'm here to, to influence and lead or, or provide advocacy for you guys, for guys and gals. So come and see the place. Come and hang out. Let's share a meal together, et cetera. You have to look at those small opportunities to, to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say this a lot, you know, it's almost like a, my mantra, but you got to connect, you got to collaborate, and you have to own it together. Uh, and connection starts with that. Is let's break the ice, let's, let's share a meal together, let's get together, let's find out what, it, what makes each other click, our common interests, personalities, all those things. You have to do that. That's like a, a no-brainer must, must yeah. do. And you can't just do it once. It's got to be a continual you got to have some sustainability to it. Whether it's getting together once every three months, once a month, once a week, whatever the hell that looks like, where you're talking about something other than work and you're connecting as a human being, you, you have to make that effort. Um, I wish I could do it once a week, but my, but my schedule doesn't permit that. So yeah. I try to get it in at least. Um, we have one in the winter, so I like to do another one here this spring, and then we'll probably do something else before I leave for sure. But I look for those opportunities to get together. And I know our first sergeant council does the whole family dinner. I think once a month they get together as a – crew with their families all the shirts they go someplace downtown and have dinner that's cool and there's no agenda just get together have a meal let's talk about something other than work and just get our families together that's really good well i tried to keep it under an hour 10 minutes over i got two more questions nah it's all good (laughs) all right cool um so also reading the uh the go-giver something that i never really thought about till i read it and then once i read it i could start seeing it but it said uh the most successful people are willing to share their secrets (laughs) yeah um so what's if i mean you're pretty successful in a lot of people well the same book references this the more more influence you give Mm -hmm. the more influence you have yep so you got to get people involved and connected you gotta they gotta own it as much as you they own it more than i do like everything we do here uh, uh that's the secret is bring them in i'm not hard to find and i had somebody reached out to me yesterday for, they sent me an email for advice on career stuff. And I, I texted them back. Uh, and if anybody ever wants my number, my work cell, whatever, you can have it. I don't give a flip. So my email, just text me, ask me a question. I don't care. I mean, I'm here to, to help coach and, and enable and advocate for you. So reach out. 
Um, but you got to be accessible and you got to be willing to give influence. That means you got to be, you can't just make it all about you yeah. all the time. You can't, you know, we can't be the, the types of the talk at a three sides of a mouse where we say, hey, we want everybody to, be, to have ownership and, and provide ideas and provide input. And the minute they do, we want to shut them out or say, no, no, never mind. I want to do it this way. Then why, why you ask me? You know, you got to be willing to give a little bit mm-hmm. or give a lot. <laughs> you know, yeah. as long as they meet the intent and the vision of where we want to go. It's all good. Let them have some creative space. Let them, that way they own it. They'll commit. They won't just comply. Do whatever it is we're talking about doing. Yeah. Is that, so if you had to share one secret, is that's that it. it? Just be accessible. Open it up. Don't make it about you. I mean, you can have, you can have, share your vision. Say, hey, this is where I want us to go with X, Y, and Z, whatever that is. Um, case in point, we had a meeting a few weeks ago before I went on leave about the quarterly award ceremonies. Hey, we're going to, new year, we're going to revamp some things. Um, hopefully the pandemic's behind us, knock on, would um, so we can open up some more doors and do more things and be more creative so and i had a big meeting you know i threw a lot of we threw a lot of firepower at it um, a good sized committee and i told them here's the vision i want people to be to make it fun make it a fun event to attend i want to pack the house for these things um, and i want to have it you know i want to honor the, the nominees and their families to the to the utmost yeah um i want a lot of people you know if you want to throw in some some slideshows, some, something. Make it more personable, more a fun event. Make it an event that I, if I'm a staff sergeant or a tech sergeant that's busy working that I want to, hey, can I go to this? Make it that type of deal. That's all I ask. Everything else, I'm here to provide top cover, cut red tape, and find a way to yes. Come and see me when you yeah. run into a wall, and we'll, we'll figure out how to get around it or knock it down. Go run with it. Own it. That's it. Simple. Um, simple. Keep it simple for people because otherwise if you start trying to micromanage or tell them, you know, how to color stuff in or how to do X, Y, and Z or whatever, then they have no no uh, commitment. It's just they'll comply with whatever you ask them to do and they'll, they'll check the box and give you a 50% effort and then you'll have a ceremony. It'll meet the box. It'll check the box, but it won't be something that... Uh, yeah, what's the difference between uh, compliance and commitment? Compliance and commitment. Compliance is, you know, hey, I'll do what you ask me to do because, you know, because I have to, because I, I work here. I'm taking a paycheck from the Air Force and, you know, you're my IE supervisor, whatever, you know, whatever role it is. And I'll, and I'll, meet, I'll meet the requirements of whatever set, AFI, checklist, whatever. I'll check the box. Mm-hmm. Commitment is, hey, I'm going to do this and I'm going to meet all the requirements, but I'm going to go extra. I'm going to give you the extra. I'm going to run that extra mile for you uh, and fully put in, you know, my creative that's into everything. I'm going to go out of my way to, to give you that extra, to run that extra mile, to make it extraordinary in essence. It sounds okay. cheesy, but it's true. Is because I'm committing. You you gave me enough of an open canvas, uh, blank canvas to paint and be creative and own it. When you give people that, they'll go they'll go the extra mile for you. Okay. At least it's been my experience. Yeah, passion. I'll yeah. go the extra mile if my boss tells me, "Hey, you have a there's the vision I have for it. Here's the mission type order. Go execute it. Cool. You trust me enough to do this." I want to show, I want to give you, you know, mm-hmm. I want to do so well, you're going to give me more, 10 more things that you're going to ask me to do because you're going to see how this turns out. Yeah, if you give people a task and the confidence and belief that they can do yep. it, they'll, they'll run through walls. Now, before you do that, you better provide some, you better provide enough coaching leading up to those things. Coaching, um, you better provide them with the resources when they need them and, mm-hmm. uh, or be willing to at least get most of those resources, whatever available. Um, and you better keep your word of, hey, I'm going to provide top cover and provide resources and cut red tape for you. Um, and by the way, I'm going to coach you. I'm going to let you know, like, hey, this before you do this, keep X, Y, and Z in mind. Or this happened, you know, last time. Maybe you can, we can find a workaround for it. 
Um, you got to provide some coaching. That way they don't get themselves in a situation where it blows up in their face and it's worse off. Um, but ultimately, uh, people will commit when they feel like you, they can trust you. Yeah. If they can't trust you, if you don't, if, if they don't feel like you're going to look out, you know, for their best interest or for the best interest of the whole thing, and you're looking out for yourself or you're making it about you, uh, they'll just, maybe they'll comply. Yeah. They'll work out of fear and just do it, get it done. It's just to say that in the, uh, and I think it was the culture code, it, it talks about that. Like people won't, won't trust you if you don't trust yourself and they won't, they won't accomplish yeah. things. Yeah. And the cool thing is, you know, in this job, you find yourself in a lot of opportunities to, to influence, to, to help decisions be made and to just put people in opportunities to grow and to, to get the best out of them. Right. Um, and that's the thing that I'm, if I leave, when I, when we leave here this summer, I'll be the most proud of is just seeing people come out of their shell and being given the, the opportunity to run with things and to own it. Yeah. Um, About 18 months as command chief here, right? What's been your be most a, proudest be 18 moment? 18 months. Uh, multiple proud moments. I can't, I mean, I have too many to count. I mean, That's right fair. now you put me in a spot, but yeah. um, I, we showed up here at the end of December of 20, beginning of January of, of you know, of 21, and we go straight into a Nori, mm-hmm. seeing the team maneuver through that, through COVID, through the elements and the weather and everything else. And then, you know, you run right into the Nori part one, part two. We, we put that to bed. We did extremely well. Um, you know, the whole time we're, we're working on initiatives, you know, quality of life type stuff or FSS or MSG doing phenomenal work to get after housing, all those challenges, um, doing the extra work uh, to make sure our housing validation, all our stuff got done right and our housing allowance rates went up. Um, and then leading up to the SYNC IEA, uh, being a finalist in the Air Force, which is, I don't think people realize how big of a deal that is, how many installations. It's your second time. Um yeah, I've been there, done it. I was in 2015. I was part of the team that that hosted it, so I was you know, writing the package and then hosting the team and all that. But um, my gut, every 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 fiber, every cell in my body tells me I think we're going to be the winner um, this time around here at Fairchild. I think we meet everything the award aims to recognize, and I think pound for pound, nothing's been handed to us. We have to be creative and scrap for everything we got. No knocking anybody else, but I think. Uh, just something that comes with being in a position where you have to be creative and, mm-hmm. and find solutions instead of formulating complaints. And I think we do a really good job of that here, trying to get after some solutions. Sounds like you heard it here first that we won. No, I'm not <laughs> saying that we won. And I was just to be really clear. It's just <laughs> my, in my honest, humble opinion. And this is just me. And I, you know, there's a 50, 50 chance I'm way off is, um, I see us as a winner. I don't see us. Somebody used the word underdog and I, I found that almost like insulting, <laughs> like underdog means you're expected to be a, to lose you're supposed to lose yeah. um, i never go into anything at least i don't think our team here goes into anything looking to lose we, we you know i agree it's so interesting you said i once talked about this uh i forget when but i was saying the same thing like america always roots for the underdog and i don't understand it because you're just rooting for the person that hasn't put in the work well, that, so, so you know underdog's just, almost like an, an, a word people used to oh, well you're you're supposed to be a, a loser you're mm-hmm. almost like a slap in the face a little bit and i hate that i hate being labeled an underdog like what you think i'm what makes you think i'm in that we're inferior that you know any less if anything if you look at it i think we're pound for pound as good as anybody out there considering what we don't have and the limitations we have and we still manage to do x y and z yeah um so that's just me that's just my personal pet peeve and people don't mean it that way as an insult they they look at it as a well you're smaller and like well I, i get it and they're not looking to insult anybody but in my head, I guess that's what I tell myself to to get even more motivated. Like, well, I don't see us as any underdog for anything. Yeah, I think we're as capable as anybody. Um, I agree with that. So, 
cool. Like Muhammad Ali has a quote uh, about impossible. Impossible is just something people throw out there to, to make you feel smaller and like you can't do it. Yeah. And it goes something like that. I'm not quoting it verbatim. I have it on my phone. I look at it often, but it's like a little poem about impossible. You know, impossible is nothing. It's good to see you struggle with a quote you like because there's a lot of quotes I like, but whenever I try to say I'm like, I'm not saying it. Well, I, <laughs> I save a lot up. of stuff and yeah. I – I'm doing my morning routine workout, whatever. Sometimes I have to take a look and say, all right, what's, what's in my head today? Yeah. Um, but if mom and Ali like fascinates me, his whole story, his whole demeanor, the things, you know, I don't know. I'll just something I, I keep nearby. Definitely. Cool. Well, one of the last things I like to ask people, we can, you'll, I'll give you the final words after, but um, when I started this podcast, I wanted to like get after like chiefs, commanders, whoever I could, yeah. high level leaders, you know, they, they've got all this experience that they've, they've know and it's, it's awkward for NCOs to just talk to chiefs. So hopefully yeah. for me, it's like a thing where they can hear you talk. But in your 25 years, who's been your biggest mentor or the best leader you know? And what was it that this person did that we can all try to emulate? Um, I don't know if I have like a biggest or, or best. I mean, I've, I've been blessed and just fortunate to be around some just phenomenal people. They're, they're great people. And, and people confuse, often confuse rank with great or mm-hmm. rank with I don't know, success, goodness yeah. or success. And that's not always the case. I mean, I had a, when I first came into the Air Force and at Shaw Air Force Base, I had a, a senior master sergeant. Uh, his name is Mike Brill, uh, senior Brill, who, you know, what I really impressed me about him was he was, he was approachable. He was down to earth. He was intense. He was about, he was about his business. Uh, but I will see him at the gym and the weight room. And he will come and talk to a, a, a Airman Basic, a one striper. I came in and no stripes. 18, 19 year old Airman Basic, and he would take the time to talk to us and, and lift weights, and, and just he used to go hang out at the DFAC and eat dinner. He was by himself; he was he wasn't married. Um, so he would eat at the Chow Hall for dinner or lunch, whatever, and he would just take the time to talk to us about life, about the Air Force, about things to really focus in on and worry about. You know, um, I feel like especially in '98, that wasn't normal. '97, '98, it wasn't normal, and it was just he was humble enough and focused enough on what mattered to know, like, hey. I, if I don't talk to these to these airmen, to these who else is putting stuff in their head? Yeah, it sounds like such a simple gesture that if you would have said, "Hey," if you would just say, "Hey, John, go to the chow hall and talk to your airmen," I'd be like, "Okay, yeah, probably wouldn't have done it." But he but hearing, he just did it naturally. It. You see you in the weight room, or he'll see you in the gym, and he would talk to you. Or he'll he'll hey, I'm gonna see him at the defect. He'll talk to you, and when it was time to go to work and do things, he will be you know intense about it, and all about his business. And, and and that's what I to me that's that's a senior master sergeant. That's what a senior NCO. That to me was my bar. Like, I want to be like yeah. this guy, all about his business. When it's time to be about business, but at the same time, you can go to him for life advice, for career advice, whatever. Did you ever tell senior or hopefully chief Brill that? Yeah, he, he retires a senior. Okay. And he was one of those guys, I think he, he did his 20, 21 years and decided to call it. And then uh, I think he's moved to Nevada. Um, I think he was teaching college or something along those lines. Um, but he was just one of those people he had the right to me is the right focus. You need to be accessible and available to your feet, to your people. That, that's your job. That's what you're there for. Mm. You know, if you're not going to be accessible and available and, and open up and be honest with folks and what, what are we doing? What are you doing? I mean, you're making it about yourself. So that was, that made a great impression on me on what, a if I ever make it at the time, I remember being a, an airman basic one striper thing. If I ever make it that far, I want to be like that guy. Yeah. You know, he keeps himself in shape. He's about his business. And he's available and, and, and there for, for folks when they need to, when he needs to be. You feel like you've done it? Like you're doing that? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, time will tell. I don't know. I it's mean, hard. It's hard to like, yeah, I, I do that. I'm in the yeah. moment now. I'm like, whatever. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, 
I'd say most most of the air traffic people think that you know them or that they know you. So I'd, yeah, which is I think pretty rare. And it's hard with this job because there's so many people, and then you, I mean, you always wonder like, am I doing am I doing a good enough job? Do people even, you know, have I helped anybody? Have I influenced anybody? You sometimes you never know. Sometimes you do. Some people tell you you run into them five, ten years from now. They say, man, you were like, you were great, or mm-hmm. or if you stunk up the joint or you did terrible in an interaction, you might never hear about it. Or you will. Maybe you. I hope I do. I hope I hear from everybody. Like, hey, you you sucked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you got this figured out. But I think if that's something you're after, I'm I'm confident yeah. you'll do a better job at it, and you'll probably get those things. Correct. That's important to you. Yeah. So I hope so, man. I, I hope. I, mean, I want the best for people and for them personally and for their career and all that. So I hope uh, I've been a good influence. I mean, when I wake up in the morning, I'm not waking up looking to to ruin somebody's day or to be terrible at my job. That's for sure. You know, I want to be good. good. Um, so yeah, Mike Brill comes to mind, and I have multiple people I encounter. I mean, too many to to mention. Mm-hmm. I mean. Uh, well, there's that tech sergeant that, that came in. Remember, thanks my first thanks uh, Christmas away from home in '97. Uh, tech sergeant Richie shows up at the dorms and he picks up all of us that are there in the dorms, hanging out, nowhere to go for Christmas. He took us to his house for Christmas. I think it was Christmas morning for lunch and a movie. He just came to your dorms. Hey, yeah, you're with yeah, me. old school. He just showed That's up cool. in our dorm. No and I didn't even work yeah. for him. I didn't even. Um, I was a longman T in his shop. He worked in the mobility shop. You know, the they used to call it Mobax or. IPE, Individual Protective Equipment Shop. And uh, I was an augmentee, so I would go there and, and you know, when the exercises, op- real-world operations, and just go help in that warehouse pretty much. And that's how he knew a lot of us from that. And then he showed up in our dorm Christmas morning, knocked on our door. I remember I was playing, like, some loud Biggie Smalls music or something crazy, mm-hmm. you know. And then he's banging on my door, like, what's going on? And I thought I was in <laughs> trouble. I was like, no, get dressed, come over to the house, bring you over to my house for Christmas lunch. I think we watched, he, his wife and all of them made lunch for us and we watched the movie. We watched The, the Saint. Is it, is it Heath, Heath Ledger or something? I don't know. I remember who that was. Um, but little stuff like that, that to me is like, that's not a chief doing it. That's not a senior. That's not somebody doing it, chasing something mm-hmm. or for, for, for whatever reason. This somebody doing it because it's the right thing to do. These airmen are alone. You know, they're hanging out in the dorms. They're away from home. I think he knew a lot of us as our first Christmas away from home sure. or, you know, or you know, not being back, whatever we're from. So he, he made it a point to go and find us and, hey, let's go have lunch. I'll feed you guys, watch a movie, and then I'll take you back home. And it's something positive to do on a, on a Christmas holiday. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting with Senior Bro and the tech sergeant. What was the name? Tech sergeant? Richie. Tech sergeant. That was his last name, yeah, Richie? Yeah, Richie. Yeah, tech yeah. Sergeant Richie. Like, it seems like your mo- your, the two mentors you mentioned hit you when you were this young airman. So it sounds yeah. like airmen, these young airmen, I, I, it's I say the perfect time. They were influential people, and at the time I don't think they realized how much of an impact they have. Maybe they did, I don't know. And then you had other people that you come across in different seasons in your life and your career with mm-hmm. they, they say something, do something. Because people hear what you say, but really listen to what you do. Yeah. <laughs> That's something I, I stick with. No, it doesn't matter what you say or how you say you feel. It's what you do, you know, your actions. What actions follow the things you're talking about? That's what they listen to. That's what they remember. And that's what they what burns in their head is what you do. Um, anywho, there's different people in different paces in my life, times in my life. You know, I, I had a... Uh, Tech Sergeant Bayless, when my brother, my bro, younger brother got really sick one time. He was in the ER. Um, he was in ICU. Uh, he had a medical condition that's now under control. Mm. Long story short, I remember calling him. I was in a panic. He was, at the time, I probably was 19 years old or something like that. And I was freaking out because my mom was, everybody was hysterical. that thought he wasn't going to make it. He was, like, passed out. It was crazy. Um, and I remember calling him in a panic. And he was like, calm down. Just go home. 
I'll take care of your leap stuff. Cause I was freaking out about, I gotta do the leap paperwork. Like, yeah, I, don't no, I got, do that. I, I got you. I, I, I'll take care of it. Go home, be with your brother. Mm-hmm. I got you covered. You just flew out um, that day, the next day, the, the next day or that same day I was on a, I was going somewhere. I was going back home uh, to be with my brother and to see what was going on. And it wasn't as crazy as I thought it was going to be. But anywho, by the time it was my first real emergency at home type deal. And then blue, he, he goes by blue. He came through and said, just go take care of your business. And to this day, I still hear from him now and then I still, um, but that was one of my supervisors at Shaw, you know, when I was a senior airman. Um, just a lot of little things, you know, that people do for you, things they say. Um, they say things, but the things they do that really just made an impression on me of what right looks like as a supervisor and as a senior NCO, et cetera, mm-hmm. to this day. And then I mentioned I, I work with, you know, Phil Easton, who's going to retire this summer. He's the UCOM senior enlisted leader. Uh, phenomenal, you know. Yeah, I watched him speak at an NCOA graduation. Very sharp. He's great family. His wife, Yolanda, it's just, they are, they, you know, people see a lot of these folks and sometimes, you know, they meet him in person or they have a chance to interact with him and work with him. Um, they're like, well, they're really this way. Like Phil is as legit as they come. You know, he's good people. Yeah. Uh, uh, chief Cruz Munoz, who's retired now, Anthony Cruz Munoz, he was a former Dirt Air Force Command Chief. Uh, just good people all around. You know, people that I can reach out to anytime if I, if I need help, if we need something for our airmen here, uh, and they'll come through for you, they'll go up to bat for you. Just make a good impression on folks. And the whole, I had a great team of command chiefs in USAFF Africa, my previous job, where I got to watch them operate and learn. Just good people. Um, there's a lot of good people, quality people out there. Uh, what I ask people to keep in mind is you might catch a glimpse of them some days. Um, where they're busy, they're running around, they're not as attentive as you think they should be, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, we don't control our schedules. <laughs> we yeah. don't control what priorities the day brings. Um, and we try to do the best we can with the limited time we have. Sometimes it'll be 12 months at a base, 18 months or 24 months um, to make a difference, to change some things. And, you know, and, and even the day to day, you know, sometimes your day is 10 hours. Sometimes it's 12 hours because you get to go home and change and you're still at work doing some after work hours event. Um, so just keep that in mind. There's a, there's a yin and a yang with that. Yeah. It's cool to hear what a command chief recognizes as their mentors growing up. Yeah. So I thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I exceeded it, almost hit 90 minutes here, so I'll oh, let wow. you have the last word. Yeah, it goes by yeah. fast when you're doing it. It doesn't feel yeah. like it. But I'll give you the last words, and then we'll end this thing. So the last words are, are this, and I, and I mentioned it before, uh, and these are key things that I write down. I have a big whiteboard in my office, and I've been, I, I kind of read different things, come across different things. but uh, And I hit it before, but if people remember, they might hear you say things, they can hear you, but they ultimately listen to and follow what you do, right? Mm-hmm. What actions come with that? Um, the other piece is, you know, no matter what your role is, I mean, you're, it's not about you. <laughs> you're there to give influence. You're there to, to make it about we and to us and not about me and I and what's in it for me, right? Just keep that in mind, whatever. And they're not going to pay you enough to do these jobs, to be a, whether you're a staff sergeant, whatever job you're in, senior airman staff, whatever. The Air Force, the military is not meant to make you rich. Um, but the experiences you get to have, the opportunities that are, you know, presented in front of you and the people you get to interact and work with. Um, not only, you know, sometimes people won't be at their best. Sometimes they'll be at their best. Sometimes they'll be at their worst. Mm-hmm. But the interactions, the, the experiences, is pretty much uh, your biggest takeaway from military service or any kind of service uh, to your nation. Uh, and the last thing, and you, you heard this before, and I, and I, I, I kind of try to live by it is, Give as much influence as possible. The more influence you give, the more you have. That means open doors for people. You're there to open doors for people, bring them into the conversation, um, coach them, leave them better than you found them, 
uh, expose them to as much, you know, info as much, influence as possible. Um, and that's it. That's the secret to it. If there's a secret to anything. Uh, I mean, I pride myself on being a, a team builder and a synergizer and a, kind of a big connection uh, kind of person. Connection, collaboration, and collective ownership. That's it. Sounds good. To be an influence, be influenced. Yep. Cool. Well, I, <laughs> Chief Guzman, thank you for being here. Thanks for being number 18. I really appreciate it. And uh, Number 18. That's uh, That was Chief Wright. 18. Hey, you guys, I knew we found a way to connect it. And K. Wright, phenomenal people. Chief yep. Wright. Chief Master of the Air Force Wright, retired now. Um, had a chance to meet him a few times. I think he's one of those people that, yeah, definitely look up to as a great influencer. Yep. He was walking through a crowd once, and I reached over and he fist bumped me. <laughs> I just got well, in. You there touched, yeah. You fist bumped. Yeah, you, got, fist you were bumped blessed up. by enlisted I Jesus. I was Good for during you, my his brother. active duty yeah, time. I, and I, one thing impression that he made on me was I was at a, it was the command chief whatever orientation deal mm-hmm. back in 2019. It was towards the end of his you know uh, run at you know his, right. that position. And uh, I think I talked to him like once or twice maybe. I think I saw I saw him at Eglin in Florida. We. We had like a chief's dinner and all that. And I remember him saying, Hey Goose, how's it going? And I was like, Oh, he actually knows my name. <laughs> like, yeah, I didn't realize cool. he knew my name. Like, um, Isn't anyway. it weird how Pete, that's so important to people? Like, Whoa, this guy knows mine. Like it, it means a lot. And I think it had you. to do with the circles yeah. we, we ran in with chief, you know, with yeah. the, I don't know. So regardless, you felt important. And I felt like his guy yeah. actually remembered my name. Yeah. He, he meets like thousands of people a day in that capacity. And even now his capacity in his role, now retired life, he's meeting a lot of people on a daily. And I'm like, wow, this guy actually remembers. It's, so in ALA week two, that's that's what I always teach is if you can just remember people's name, they're going to like you. And so like that's just yeah. like proof. Like, Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that's cool. it. There's no secrets, man. Just show up, do the work, give some influence, and then uh, make it about the we and the us. And along those lines, uh, and, I, and I'll leave it you know, with this, self-care, uh, self-care as in fitness, your mental well-being, taking time off, which I don't do enough of. Mm-hmm. And I, and I'm you said that. Give myself <laughs> a hard time about that, taking some leave and not racking up future lose and being crazy about yeah. it. Um, self-care is a selfless thing because it's about you know keeping yourself balanced and good to go and keeping your family and everybody good to go. That way you can better serve the people that you get to serve with. Um, so if you're off balancing those things, then you're going to be any good in the office. You're going to be you know short, snappy, overweight, burnt out, and yeah. miserable and Nobody needs that in their Senior life. Senior Guzman from Lake and Heath. That's yeah, you'd be that guy who <laughs> yeah. was just salty and, uh, damn, everything. I'm overweight. You know, I don't feel like I got any sleep the last three and a half <laughs> years. Um, and that's no good for the team. They need I agree. You to get your best. Cool. Once again, thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to Have a Taishu Podcast number 18 with Command Chief Master Sergeant Daniel Guzman. Being available for airmen and coaching people is what Chief values the most. I appreciate him finding the time on my birthday to come by and talk for two hours. The airmen at Ermendorf have a good command chief headed their way this summer. Have a Taishu Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Breaker, and Anchor. Thanks for listening.